Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open your Bibles this morning for the final time in this series to the book of Exodus, chapter 34 today. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, you can use your, your phone, your tablet. Those, those things are there. Our, our notes are always on the YouVersion app. So if you have that YouVersion app, the Bible app, uh, go to the menu and find events. And when you click on our church's name, you should see this sermon today. But there's also a pew Bible in front of you. If you want to turn to page 70 in that pew Bible, you'll find Exodus chapter 34. And today we're going to begin in verse 29 in just a few moments. As we come to the end of this series in Exodus, I wonder if we did a poll or a report and I said, what was Exodus about? What happened in Exodus? So you might be able to give the Sunday school answers, uh, Israel and the people were freed in Egypt and, and the plagues and stuff. But there's been a lot more that has taken place since we were in that primary story. What happened here in the book of Exodus? Where did we go with this series? Where do we go every week as we came to God's word in the book of Exodus? What lessons were there for Israel? What lessons were there for us as a New Testament church in the 21st century? Well, hopefully you come away with at least just a few things that are foundational. God's power enables God to keep his promises to his people. And if above all else, that's the only thing you remember, God's power is what causes him to keep his promises to his people. In the salvation of his people, in the judgment of those who are not his people, God is faithful and God is powerful to do what he promises he will do. As we started at the beginning of the book, we saw the chaos at the beginning of Exodus, and God was in that moment preserving Moses. You remember, uh, Pharaoh was after the children, and Moses' mother put him in the basket, and he was saved by God's miraculous preservation of his life. We saw the uncertainty of Midian as Moses ran into the wilderness and we saw God calling Moses there at the burning bush and came to the awe and the wonder of God's signs in Egypt as God was using Moses to show his power to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. We come to the miracle of Passover as God was freeing his people through the leadership of Moses. The parting of the Red Sea as God was rescuing his people through the waters and then bringing those waters down on Pharaoh's army. We saw God provide bread and water in the wilderness as God was making provision for his people. We saw the giving of the law at Sinai as God was instructing his people. In the last few weeks, we've spent looking at the tabernacle and the priesthood as God promised to dwell with his people. All of this has been the story of Exodus. And so what can we say as we come to the end? What can we say as we come to the end of Exodus? What was Israel saying perhaps at the end of these events? Except maybe we beheld his glory. 
in his preserving, in his calling, in his using of Moses, in his own leadership of the people, in his freeing his people, rescue and providing, dwelling. As we came to Sinai, we saw literally the fiery, cloudy pillar leading them by day and by night. We saw the glory of God descending on Sinai and calling Moses into his glory as it descended as a cloud on the mountain. We saw all of this with our own eyes. We read it. I preached it. We beheld his glory. Israel beheld his glory. My question for you here at the end is what about you? Have you beheld God's glory? In this story, in the character of Moses, the people of Israel, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. Yes, here as we read, but what about personally? Have you individually and personally come face to face with the glory of God? Have you beheld his glory? As we come to the end of this book, I hope you understand that the point of Exodus is that you can behold and know the glory of God. Look at Exodus chapter 34. Let's begin reading in verse 29. We'll read to verse 35 as sort of our anchor text for today. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded them, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. Number one today in this short little Last part of our narrative, we see a reflection of glory. The reflection of glory. Moses has been on Mount Sinai, or as the text says, in Mount Sinai, in the glory of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus chapter 24, verse 18 says that God called him there into the glory of God, and he was there 40 days and 40 nights. And last week we read in chapter 34, verse 5, how God's glory descended in the presence of Moses. God put Moses in the cleft of the rock, covered him with his hand as his glory passed by, and he proclaimed his name to Moses. Moses has been here at the epicenter of God's glory, 40 days and 40 nights. He came down to deal with the incident of the golden calf. We read about that last week. Remember, God threatened to wipe the people out. He threatened to send them forward without his presence. But because of Moses' intercession for the people as a priestly figure, God agrees to relent of destroying the people. He agrees to go with the people, and he he agrees to continue to bless them. And here as we begin this week's reading in chapter 34, verse 29, we see Moses come with two new tablets. Remember the first ones Moses broke. As he came down from the mountain, in his anger at the people and their sin against the Lord, he broke the tablets. He threw them down in judgment. But God, in his mercy and his grace, undeserved, certainly, 
has given Moses a new set of tablets, his commandments, his law, his instruction, not just for Moses, but for the people. What grace and what mercy is that for God to do that? But something is different as Moses descends this time. Something is off. Moses' face is shining. Now, Moses doesn't know or seem to be aware that his face is shining. The Bible says it's shining because he had been talking with God. Moses' face shone because he had been in the unmitigated presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights, in the cloud, in the glory of the Lord, beholding even just the backside of God's glory as it passed by. That radiance and that glory is radiating from Moses' face as he comes down from the mountain. And in verse 30, it says that the people see this from afar and they are afraid to come near him. And in verse 33, to sort of fix the problem and maybe make the people less afraid to come near Moses. They make this veil for his face and he covers his shining face from their view. In verses 34 and 35, if you'll read that again, whenever Moses went in before the Lord, he would remove the veil. Verse 35, the people would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. Moses would put the veil over his face again. So this seems to be an ongoing pattern now that he's been in the presence of God, that as he goes in into the presence of the Lord to hear from God, he removes the veil, but as he comes out to the people, he must put the veil back on. The glory of God is so brilliant, so pure, so radiant, and so powerful that it etches itself like a photograph on film into Moses' face. It's soaked into his very skin. And the people remembered the fear that they experienced. Back in chapter 20, verse 19, they say, Moses, you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us anymore lest we die. They saw his glory in the fire and the cloud and the thunder and the lightning, and they pleaded that God not speak anymore. They were afraid for their lives. And the same thing in a small part is true here. In verse 30, they're afraid of Moses' face shining. What is this? What's going on? This has got to be terrifying, not necessarily just to them, but think about even to us today if someone were to come in here in that state. It reminds us, all of this reminds us, that the presence and glory of God is not something to be trifled with. So much of modern contemporary Christian music is obsessed with the the glory of God and show us your glory and reveal your glory and let the glory come down. And those are fine prayers. We understand what that means in light of the New Testament. But what would that have meant for them? There would have been no hand raising or jumping or anything. There would have been people falling to their face on the ground, fearing for their lives at the weight and the seriousness and the heaviness of the glory of God. The glory in the presence of God is not something to be taken lightly, but to be entered into with reverence. Yes, we come boldly through Christ, but not flippantly and not carelessly, carefully, reverentially into the presence of our Lord. But there's also a sign here. This, right here on the face of Moses, is what Israel is to be to the nations. 
Israel is to be to the nations as they go into the promised land. They are to be to the world a shining reflection of the glory of God. They are to be a glow-in-the-dark little version of God's presence to the world. Isaac has this little pacifier, and it's connected to his pajamas, but there, there's this little ring on the passy that, um, that glows in the dark. So if you, know, you go in the night and you want to put it back in in the crib, you can see it easily because it soaked up that light all day. You know, when you were little and you got the Burger King toys, you had to go put it under the lamp so it would soak up the light. Then it would glow in the dark. That's what's happening here. Moses has soaked up the glory of God. Israel is soaking up the glory of God so that in the darkness of the world, they shine. Or at least they're called to shine. Israel has beheld God's glory now through his works, literally there on the mountain in the giving of his law. And now they are to radiate it. Now that you are my people, God says, by the law I gave you, live like you're my people in the world. Look back at chapter 34, verse 10. He said, Behold, I'm making a covenant before you and all the people. I will do marvels such have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do for you. Israel, as you go into the land, this is your primary calling. To radiate and to shine the glory of God. In the darkness of those pagan nations around you. And God says, I want to use you to show my glory to them. And here on Moses' face is this perpetual reminder, this ongoing sign. He has been in the center of God's glory, 40 days and 40 nights. And now, miraculously, the glory of God has come down to live in the midst of his people, in the middle of the camp, in their very hearts and their very souls, as he is radiating through them. And he says, having beheld my glory, just as Moses' face reflects my glory, having beheld my glory, Israel, you are now to reflect my glory to the world. In their obedience to this law that God gave them, both corporately as a nation and individually as individual people, in obedience to God's instructions about worship, Remember, as he unveiled the tabernacle for them and their measurements and the materials and the color and the design, this very tent, this tabernacle, this dwelling place of God's presence was to be a little portable reflection of God's glory in the middle of his people wherever they went. And now God reminds them of this. In chapter 35, verses 1 through 3, We have a reminder of the Sabbath. Look there in just verse 2. Six six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. There's this reminder of this day of worship and rest to God. I'm not uh, what you call a Sabbatarian, and I, I don't believe that we have a strict Sabbath law in the New Testament in terms of what Sunday is. But here's the New Testament version of that, I think, is that Sunday is the Lord's day. 
Sunday is the Lord's Day, the first day of the week in which the Christians gathered and worshipped there in the early church. Why? Because it's the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. This is the Lord's Day. I remind people when our priorities and when our schedules and when our timetables do not allow for us to be with God's people on God's day, that this is in fact not your day, it is God's day. He has said, one day a week, rest, worship, devote yourselves to me, be refreshed, be filled because it's for you. And then go into the world and do your labor faithfully unto the Lord as a light to him. In chapter 35, verses 4 through 29, we see the contributions taken for the tabernacle. And if all of this sounds familiar, this is the way some of these Old Testament passages have it. We have long passages where God tells the people to do something. And then you have another set of long passages where they actually do the thing that God told them to do in the first place. But instead of just a brief recap, we go over the whole thing again. So in those verses, we have what we saw back in chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And chapter 27, verses 20 through 21. But for today, look here just at verses 5 through 7. Chapter 35, verses 5 through 7. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, Oil, light for the spices, for the anointing, for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. So this is exactly what the Lord commanded them before we began the instructions about the tabernacle. He told them, take contributions from the people for these materials to build the tabernacle. Chapter 35, verses 30 through 36, then, we have the actual construction of the tabernacle. If you remember, men were called, Bazalel and Aholiab were called, filled with God's spirit, set aside to serve him in the constructing and the crafting of these materials for the tabernacle. Look at chapter 35, verses 30 through 35. Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called us by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood and work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan." He has filled them with skill to do every work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver or any sort of workman or skilled designer. So God raises up these two men to teach others to carry out the task of constructing and crafting these various elements for the tabernacle. From the curtains to the, to the veils to the frames to the altars to the various basins, God has filled these men with his spirit and with craftsmanship and skill to do this according to the pattern that he showed them. In chapter 37, through part of chapter 38, we see the furnishings for the tabernacle. All that stuff we went through two weeks ago with the pictures and the ark and this table and the lampstand and the basin and the altar, all of that stuff is now being constructed by the people. Chapter 37, verse 1, we see the ark. Bezalel made the ark. The Ark of the Covenant of Acacia wood, two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Look down at verse 10. 
We see the construction of the table, the table for the bread of the presence, the showbread. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Look at verse 17, the construction of the lampstand. And all these details, you want to go back and listen or watch two weeks ago. We went through all the details of this stuff earlier. Verse 17, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. Look down at verse 25. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit and square. And two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. Now we come into chapter 38, verse 1. We see the altar outside the tabernacle for burnt offerings. Look at verse 1. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. Down in verse 8, what we talked about last week, the construction of the bronze basin. Verse 8, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then in verse 9, right next to that, he made the court for the south side, the hangings of the court were of twined linen, a hundred cubits, and he goes on to talk about the pillars and the construction of the court around the tabernacle. So if you're kind of following the course of events, we have the furnishings made. We have the outer court made. And now we move into what we talked about last week in chapter 39 with the dressing of the priests. In verse 1, chapter 39, from the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. And again, we went over all this last week, so go listen or watch that if you want more detail about these clothing items. In verse 2, we see the ephod. He made the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Uh, Look down in verse 6. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree, and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. Remember the two onyx stones on top of the ephod that had the 12 names of the 12 sons of Israel engraved there that the priest would literally on his arms bear the names of Israel into the presence of the Lord. In verse 8, he made the breastpiece in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. Remember there on the breastpiece were the 12 stones also representing and engraved with the 12 tribes of Israel that the priest would bear on his heart into the presence of the Lord. Look down at verse 22, chapter 39. He also made the robe of the ephod woven of all blue. So that beautiful blue robe that was underneath the ephod piece of the priest's robe He's now made that. Verses 27 through 29. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twined linen, and the sash of fine twined linen of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with the needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we're getting closer and closer to the completion of this holy place for God to dwell, from the courtyard to the furnishings, now to the dressings of the priest. And now we come to the completion of all of this work, chapter 39, verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, 
And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Look down at verse 43 of that same chapter, chapter 39. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Do you see that repeating pattern from what we talked about, about our worship of the Lord and what he has commanded time and time again, as the Lord showed, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord revealed? That's the pattern we see here. They've not gone into this process and devised their own things or created their own systems of worship. They're doing things exactly as the Lord had commanded. And now Moses sees it, says it's good. More importantly, God sees it, and he says this is exactly as I have commanded. Look at chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. We'll read that together. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put up the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen of the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court." The tabernacle has been completed, the materials are done, the dress and the adornments for the priest are awaiting them to put them on, and now it's all coming together in this little small portable picture of the glory of God radiating from the midst of his people. This man, Moses, whose face is literally reflecting the glory of God, leading this people who are to reflect the glory of God, have constructed this place where God's presence and God's glory has come from Sinai into the heart of the tabernacle to shine in the midst of the nations. This whole thing, this whole practice with the people and the tabernacle is to be a living, breathing, moving reflection of the glory of God who dwells in the midst of his people as they dwell with their God. As we come to the end of chapter 40, and coincidentally the end of the entire book, I want you to notice this is how it ends. We see the outpouring of glory. Look at chapter 40, beginning in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel was set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys." You see the progression of the glory of God over the last couple chapters we've looked at from Mount Sinai up there far away appearing to Moses, appearing to the 70 elders, and now it comes and fills glory changed by means like that for me. I've not seen the Red Sea part and Pharaoh's armies crushed. I haven't seen him defeat my enemies. He hasn't done that for me, hasn't he? Colossians chapter 2, 
verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Watch this last verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has defeated your enemies. Well, you say, well, I haven't seen signs and wonders like that. I haven't seen miracles like that. And my question again would be, haven't you? Ephesians chapter 2, what were you before you met Christ? Dead, Paul says, in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the great verse, though. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, raised us up in Christ. You haven't seen a miracle? You haven't seen the heart transformation and the life transformation in your own life? As you came to Jesus Christ, you didn't see that resurrection that took place as you went from darkness to light, from death to life. You haven't seen a miracle? Well, I haven't seen God's provision like that. Romans 8.32 says, if God did not spare his own son, if he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all the things that we need. You know God's provision because he's met your greatest need in Christ. Well, but I'm not God's people like they were. We're, we're, we're the New Testament church. We're not Israel after all. 1 Peter 2.9 You believers are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are you convinced yet that this is for you? You might be at the end and you say, well, that's all true. That's all fine and good and I love my salvation. I love the gospel, but I have never seen God's glory like they did. I think you know what my question is by now, don't you? Haven't you? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification, atonement for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Lord Jesus Christ, his pre-incarnate person there, existing with God the Father, with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And what does it say in John 1.14? That same Word who was with God and was God became flesh, and we beheld his glory. When we look to Jesus Christ... 
His person and his work and his sinless life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, his triumphant ascension, we see the very glory of God. To look upon Jesus by faith is to look upon the glory of God. And it's better, listen, than anything Moses or Israel could ever hope to have seen. Do you know the next time in the Bible we see Moses? Somebody tell me, Bible trivia time. When's the next time we see Moses? Like the person, not just the name, the person in the Bible. I'm waiting for answers. It's the transfiguration in the Gospels. It's Jesus' glory. This is fun stuff. I don't have time to stop here, but I want to. Jesus' glory is revealed there on the mountain, shining like the sun. And who's there standing beside him? But Moses and Elijah, these two signs of the law and the prophets, all bearing witness to Jesus, talking about his departure. Do you know what that word means as they talk about his departure? They were talking about Jesus' exodus, his deliverance. That's the next time we see Moses. These are things that we're talking about today, the fulfillment in Christ that Moses and Elijah could only long to know. Hebrews 11 says prophets longed to see this stuff and you know it. A greater Moses, a greater deliverance, greater miracles, greater rescue, greater Passover, greater provision, greater promises, and a greater glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as we come into this place each and every week to do these somewhat seemingly simple things we do, we sing and we hear the word and we preach and we celebrate the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. As we see and participate in these things, do you understand we are seeing and participating in what prophets longed to see? What Israel saw in part changed them. How much more is it changing you and me who see in full? Turn with me, if you want to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll end here today. So we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for this, to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Believers, unbelievers, as we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. God's Spirit, His presence comes into your life through the blood of Christ and we are changed by Him. Not just for a time and a season as was Israel with the tabernacle. But beholding the Lord, Paul says, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another, to another. You know something, Christian, that not even Moses and Israel could at the foot of Sinai. 
Not just the glory of God up there somewhere far off, but the glory of God there in the tabernacle, the glory of God there in your very life. You know God's glory as a transforming, indwelling reality by the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit. And you say, well, how do I know that? Look down at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Are you beholding God's glory, believer, through worship, through prayer, as you read your Bible, as you come to church, as you serve his people? Believers, are you being set free from the power of sin daily, or do you go back to your old taskmasters time and time again? Are you experiencing that change from one glory to another to another by God's Spirit? Are you reflecting that glory to a watching world, a lost world, a dark world? Or are you trapped by unbelief, by your grumbling, by your disobedience? The invitation for you believers today is to look to him and to understand here at the end of Exodus, if we have learned anything from this, it is that God is faithful. His power His promises. So that whatever your situation is, whatever your circumstances are this morning, here's the promise for you. You are his and he is yours. Believer today, remember your exodus. Remember your deliverer. Remember his faithfulness and take hold by every means to behold his glory, to be changed by his spirit. Remember who you are in him. And then live like it. Reflect his glory in the world. Remember the deliverance that is to come. And the glory that will be ours forever. You need not have a personal testimony this morning of signs and wonders, of burning bushes, of parted seas, of plagues, and bread from heaven. Our testimony is the one who is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. Our testimony is that one who fills all in all Jesus Christ, his person, his work, our union with him. Unbelievers here today, you're far off from God. You are not God's child. You do not belong to him. But the good news of the gospel is that you can belong to him. If you will repent of your sins and turn from your wicked ways and turn to Jesus and trust in him for cleansing, for atonement, come through your faithful high priest, Jesus, and hear the good news that you too can come into God's presence. What is the point of Exodus? It's the point of every other book in the Bible. The glory of Christ. And this book joins with every other page in the Bible to tell us one story. God is faithful. You can trust him. Whatever your circumstances, whatever your suffering, whatever your pain, whatever your questions here this morning, with your life, with your soul, you can trust 
this faithful God. Look to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and know that in this story and in your story, God is faithful. Our God and our Father, we love you and we thank you for your faithfulness. We give you praise and thanks for what you have done for us through Christ. We give you thanks for the good news of the gospel that invites those who are far off to come near by the blood of Christ. And my prayer today is that if there are those here who do not know your presence and your glory through Christ, today would be the day you draw them to faith and repentance and salvation. And for those of us who know you, who are your children, but maybe have not realized this privilege that is ours to behold your glory with unveiled faces in the presence of Jesus Christ. Help us this morning maybe to revel in that for the first time, to praise you for that, maybe for the first time with a fuller understanding of what you have done for us through Christ. God, you are faithful. You keep your promises. You preserve your people. And we thank you that one day you will bring us all the way home. God, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth for your promises, for your faithfulness. As we sing and close today and as we go from this place to reflect your glory in a dark world. Fill us with your spirit. Remind us of your goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.